Welcome to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Art Laws is a podcast that explores cultural outlaws, both present and past, from artists and filmmakers to musicians and writers. Today in Paris marks the unveiling of the infamous Christophe Jean-Claude's posthumous dream project, L'Arc de Triomphe Wrapped. Art Laws is thrilled to present a special event interview with celebrated artist and photographer Simone Chaput, who knew Christo and Jean-Claude intimately as both friend and colleague. After meeting the artist couple in New York in 1983, Simone quickly became an integral part of their life and their work. Christo and Jean-Claude were an unparalleled artistic duo, celebrated for their magnificent, monumental, and ephemeral environmental installations, often unprecedented in scale such as running fence down the California coast, the gates in New York Central Park, and wrapped coast in Australia. Also known for wrapping architecture and natural elements in fabric, such as surrounded islands in Miami and the wrapped Reichstag in Berlin, their poetic public works transcended traditional boundaries of painting, sculpture, and architecture. What stands behind each work has always been a powerful call for freedom and beauty. L'Arc de Triomphe Wrapped, a project first conceived by the artist 60 years ago, has today been fully realized. We spoke with Simone leading up to and en route to this unprecedented event. We welcome Simone Chaput to Art Laws. So Simone, you met Christo and Jean-Claude when you first moved to New York in 1983. Prior to that, you'd been doing your own fine arts photography and had a gallery how did you meet Christo and Jean-Claude, and, and what drew you to them? The reason I met them, it was an interesting story. A long time ago, back in the 70s, I became friends with a, a man called uh, Luc Hoffman, who uh, is a huge collector, lives in the south of France, in Camargue, and had a, a foundation there where he studied the behavior of, of animals. And uh, on his walls, he had a lot of works, including Picasso, Paul Klee, you name it. And there were two works by Christo, a uh, valley curtain and a running fence. And I was just uh, really curious about that. And much later on, uh, 10 years later, when I decided to move to, to New York, I mean, to go to New York for a week, initially I wasn't planning on staying there. Uh, Luke gave me Christo and Jean-Claude's phone number and said, seeing as you like their work so much, why don't you call them when you get there? And so I, I arrived, and uh, after about a week in New York, I, I gave them a call, and they invited me over the next day. That was the Whoa. beginning of our adventure. What was your first impression of Christo and Jean-Claude when you first met them? Well, they were, I mean, it was extremely easy, first of all, to get to meet them. I just had to give them a phone call, and they immediately said, yes, please come over. And they... <laughs> Uh, we went straight up to, to the studio and uh, we didn't even stop at the, at the home floor. We went straight up to the studio and they showed me the works that, uh, that Christo was working on and also drawings of a surrounded island that he had just completed in, uh, in Miami. And it was all very, very friendly. And we, the next day I got a call from Jean-Claude and said, Simon, uh, we need your help if you, if you agree to do it. We, we're doing a, a little film to get permission for the Pont Neuf project in Paris. And a bit of a soundtrack was erased. And it's, uh, it was uh, somebody speaking uh, in, uh, in, in English with a bit of a French accent. And they asked me if I would go up to work with uh, Albert and David Maisels at the time to redo a soundtrack. Wow. So, so the next day, I just went up to David and Albert Mayville's place, and uh, Jean-Claude came, Chris Oden, he said, and was working in the studio. And we spent uh, a few hours working on that, on that soundtrack. And uh, at the end of the day, Jean-Claude said, uh, we'll come back, let's go and have dinner together. And then she asked me, he said, what do we owe you for the work you just did? And I said, nothing. It's like, it was, it was just fun doing it and, and getting to, to work with you a little bit. And she said, well, next time you're in New York, if you need anything, uh, just uh, let us know. And I was preparing to go back to, to France. I was only in New York for a little while. And uh, as things happened, I went back to France. And when I came back, I had found a loft to rent in Soho. But uh, the artist who owned it, called William Morehouse from the, the Bay Area, uh, was going to be about a week late in leaving. So I had nowhere to stay. So I just called up Christian Jean-Claude and I said, can I take you up on the offer? And he said, uh, Yes, we have a guest apartment and uh, just come and, uh, and stay there. So that's how it all wow. started. What's interesting to me is that I always got the impression that Christo and Jean-Claude were very 
sort of insular in terms of their circle, but here it was, they were so open and generous. I must say, the minute uh, I, I met uh, Christo and Jean-Claude, both Jean-Claude and, uh, and I got along like a house on fire. It's like we're both French, we have a similar sense of humor, and it was, it was, re- it was really fun immediately. Everybody has their own interpretation of their work. What is your interpretation? Well, at the time, I was just curious to meet uh, the people who were behind these cr- two crazy projects that I'd seen uh, drawings of. And uh, the, the more I, I, I worked with them and the more I realized how precise they were with everything and how dedicated they were to making these projects happen. Simon, I was just curious, though, what were those two crazy projects that you're specifying? What were they working on at that time when you well, encountered Well, at the, at the time, they were working on the, on the Pont Neuf project, but the two uh, works that I had seen at Luke's house were Valley Curtain, which is a project they, they did back in uh, 1972, and then The Running Fence, which happened in California back in 1976. I don't know if you're familiar with the project. Yes, very much so. And the scope of those projects are just incredible. And it sounds like you ultimately worked with them and played various roles in their lives professionally and personally, some of which you were actually physically involved with, which Pont Neuf in Paris was one of them. Is that correct? Did yes, actually- Pont Neuf was the first one. Pont Neuf was the first one. After, after working with them in New York on various things and being around them, one day Jean-Claude called me up and said, Simon, we, we really need somebody to go and, and open our and direct our offices in Paris for the Pont Neuf project. You would have to move there for six months. Uh, would you be willing to do that for us? And uh, I said, yes, absolutely. It'll be a wonder, wonderful project to work on. And so I just uh, packed my bags, uh, closed the apartment that I have a loft that I had in Soho and uh, moved to Paris for, for six months and, and worked really hard on all the, the organization and the uh, installation of the, of the Pont Neuf. That must have been just such a surprise for you because suddenly you were deeply involved in these two artists' lives just from an introduction. How did that all start to transpire? Uh, I, I don't know. I was just fascinated by both of them. And we, we had such a beautiful time always together that I, 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 I was uh, intrigued and uh, also honored that they, they asked me to do that. But they, they always called their projects little universities for their friends meaning the people come and work with them. Mm-hmm. And when they arrive, they have no idea how to do this project because it's never been done before. And you have to learn, and you have to learn fast because there's, there's a deadline. I mean, every time Christo and Jean-Claude did a project, we would announce the day that project would open. So you're not allowed to be late, but all the press from around the world is there. And so you, you really work hard. It becomes like not a 24-7, but nearly to, to make it all, uh, all happen. Pont Neuf was interesting because there was a lot of, it took a long time for them to actually accomplish it. And I know there were a lot of people against it. When you were there for those six months, what was sort of the reaction among the Parisians? It was the same as always. There were a lot of people against it, a lot of people trying to stop it, even though we were in the, the final stages of, uh, of building everything off-site. And uh, even uh, Jacques Chirac, who, who was the, the mayor at the time, and was facing re-election, uh, did everything he could to, uh, to, to stop the project. He even got the, uh, the préfet of police from Paris to, to try and stop it. And we, we only got it done because Jacques Lang, who was Minister of Culture at the time, and uh, on the François Mitterrand, uh, called up François Mitterrand, and, they, and François Mitterrand said, this is going to happen, and opened all the doors and talked to the the prefecture of police and, and make sure that nobody would put uh, anything in our way. And it sounds like wow. you met similar resistance in the Reichstag project. There's always the same resistance, I think, on all the projects, even in Surrounded Island in Miami before these two, the, the, there was a huge resistance. If you see, if, if you're, you can see the films which were done, there's always a wonderful documentary film which was done in the early days by the Maisels and uh, which show all the intricacy of the negotiations and the dealing with politicians. I wasn't involved in dealing with the politicians. That was uh, another man called Johannes Schaub who was doing that with Christo and Jean-Claude. But Jean-Claude was a, an amazing diplomat. I mean, she knew exactly how to, how to address the people and how, how to make them basically uh, give her whatever she wanted. Speaking of the Maisels, I loved in the running fence. I mean, she, they were such 
the ultimate outsiders <laughs> coming into these sort of uh, farm communities. And it was really Jean-Claude that kind of turned people around. That to me is so interesting. And her, her personality and her forcefulness was so, so amazing. Jean-Claude was always the one. Chris was much more reserved when we would go somewhere and um, working on these projects. But Jean-Claude was always the one who would just uh, interact with everybody and and. Christo would, would charm them because he knew he was always very gentle in the back. Jean-Claude was always very friendly and uh, had a great sense of humor, but she, she could also be extremely tough. And uh, if she didn't like something, she would voice it. So there's, there's a lot of people who, who sort of had a, a negative view of Jean-Claude. But when, when you work really closely with both of them, you realize that she was, it was a bit of a, a good cop, bad cop. And it, it was needed most of the time to, to get the, these projects done. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite photographs of yours is Christo in his studio with a large drawing of the yellow umbrellas. Tell us about the umbrellas, one of Christo and Jean-Claude's projects that you photographed in 1991, both the blue umbrellas in Japan and the yellow umbrellas in California. And you also scouted locations for the umbrellas. What is it that they were specifically looking for in a location for this project? Christo has a very extremely precise uh, vision of how this project is going to look at the end. Mm-hmm. And so for the, for the umbrellas in California, we needed open spaces. They always have to be accessible, so it had to be close to, close to a road, and it was a major highway when it came to the umbrellas in California and around Tehon Pass. And in Japan, he wanted a, a river and the rice fields. It also had to be accessible not too far from Tokyo and visibility of a project had to be done in such a way that you could see it nearly all along the valley. And uh, so we, we, we scouted a lot of rivers all the way from the northern part of, of, of Japan, all the way down to the south, to, to the Kyoto area, looking at all the, all the valleys, all the, the different um, rivers which run in, in these areas. And we, we found one which was north of... Uh, of Tokyo in the Mito area, which was just, it was just perfect. The, the river was, would go from being on the left side to the, to the right side of the road. It would be visible from nearly every point. And it would, it would end up in, in a big hill in a little area called Hitochiota uh, and uh, Hitachiota. And it was this old forgotten Japanese village with little farms and uh, bonsai tree gardens and that's where the project ended and it was really really compact to to a point where when we opened the umbrellas we had to open them in a certain order if not you wouldn't if you opened one before another you couldn't open the one which was below so we had to everything was was done in in a very uh, specific way but that that area we found in japan was was just magical Wow. And, and how did the Japan and California umbrellas differ in terms of concept and color or relationship to the landscape? Well, in California, you have huge urban spaces. So the umbrellas would, would just uh, be uh, all the way up in the hills. I mean, we, we, we positioned with Christo and Jean-Claude and, uh, and uh, Volkan Gols, the, the photographer, we positioned every single umbrella, putting a wooden stake in the ground and uh, and little magnets to be able to find them in case the wooden stake was gone. And to show you how precise Christo's vision was once we had found the site, we'd be positioning umbrellas in an area, and then we'd be walking downhill, and he would say, no, we have to go back up and change the ones we just put there. And it wouldn't be a big change. It would be like 10 feet, 15 feet. And uh, so we did that. I mean, for, for all 3,100 umbrellas in both countries. Amazing. And and at the end, when, when they were open, we'd be driving down the highway in California, and Christo would say, you remember when I asked you to go and change the position of these umbrellas? And we said, yes, well, this is why. And you'd look from the, from the highway, and the way they interacted with each other was just absolutely stunning. And in well, terms of the, the link meaning? between Japan and California and the difference in terms of color and choices, what was that? Japan is a very wet country, especially when, uh, at the time when we did the project, and, and California is extremely dry. So the yellow was basically the, the, the color for California. Blue is also the color of nearly 
all the umbrellas that you see with little school children carrying and uh, so and it's a, it's a wet country so that's why the, the blue was chosen for for japan mm-hmm. very cool uh, once the umbrellas were up the uh, the reaction of the people to them was also very different it's like in in California, people would just uh, jump on them and, and have picnics and uh, boom boxes and do little barbecues around them. And whereas in, in Japan, the, the Japanese people really considered them like houses mm-hmm. and they would take their shoes off before they walked on the base of them. And they would be extremely respectful as they would be in, in a house. So it was a, a very different, uh, very different reception. Were you now photographing these projects, such as umbrellas, while they were taking place? Were you documenting I, them? No, I never photographed a project because they have a photographer called Wolfgang Bolz, who's a dear friend and who's photographed every single project since Valley Curtain. Right. And is the official photographer. He's done every single book which is out there, except one, I think, where there's also another photographer who contributed called uh, Gianfranco Gogoni. But uh, he's, uh, even right now, he's photographing in, in Paris for the, for the Arc de Triomphe. I'm just curious, Wolfgang, I mean, I know that he stepped in and finished their memoir when the original author passed. How did Wolfgang become such a big part of their life? Because it seems to me that he was sort of their right hand. I wouldn't call him the right hand. He became a a huge part. I mean, he did every single photograph. So whenever you see an exhibition of Christo's work, the the photographs are from him. Whenever you see a book, photographs are from him. He, the same thing, he approached them uh, at uh, at Valley Curtain and he was an industrial photographer from Germany, very precise, and uh, and said, I would love to to come and photograph your project. And they they said yes. And so he started by, by photographing uh, some valley curtain for himself and then a little bit at running fence and then when the when surrounded island happened he was he was just the photographer and uh, he's really good I mean, he, he Christo when when he wants a photographer with him will tell the photographer I'd like you to shoot it from here to here it, it has to, it, it's all, all the photographs you see are always Christo's vision there's not an artistic input from the photographer Right. So, uh, Ulfi was tremendous at doing that. He could work in any lighting situation and, and figure out anything that needed to be done. How would you say that your interest as an artist, photographer, particularly your interest in Buddhism and negative space, intersects with Christo and Jean-Claude's work? And did their work influence you? I don't know if they were, I can't say the work really influenced me, but their working method influenced me. Yes, they, I think the... Uh, the stubbornness they have to, to get things done was, was a huge thing for me. And, and I learned a lot from the interaction with, with other artists and other people. They were, they were always out there sharing their views. And if, if somebody invited them, they, they would always go to give a lecture to, to talk about their work. So Christo's very first project in 1962 was Wall of Barrels on Paris's left bank. Rue Visconti, that Jean-Claude helped pull off. There was risk involved and traffic stopped. What was the idea behind Christo's very first artistic intervention and what was the response? Did they ever discuss this with you? Oh, yes, we discussed it with, with everybody, even in the, in the lectures. I mean, the, the Rue Visconti project, the Wall of Barrows, came up uh, around the same time that the wall was being built in Berlin. And uh, Christo, Christo basically escaped from communist country and uh, and came came to the West. And for for him, it was it had uh, that wall going up was a was a huge thing. So the the Visconti was a way of of interpreting that in a, on a smaller scale in Paris. So that, that wall was built. I mean, it was built totally illegally, and uh, Jean Claude was instrumental at keeping the police away and telling them we could take it down anyway. So don't. Don't arrest us, don't, don't destroy it. And, uh, so it was, it was a, a really quick project, which was just up, uh, not even overnight. Now, it's interesting because it differs from his later projects that are so concerned with beauty. And this sounds like it was more political and less about beauty than something just... They, always, they can always be a political side to, to the project. If you take the rap Reichstag, the reason he wanted to, to do that project also once the wall had gone up is it could be it could be seen from both the east and the west. So it, it was a way for him to be able to keep on uh, showing his work to, to the, the communist uh, country. 
I mean, this was a new sort of new step. Christo had been painting portraits and making his living in that way. And I think 62 was this rapid sort of this this shift. What was it that Christo, did he ever talk to you about his early life? But his, his early life, when he was in, uh, in Bulgaria, he attended uh, art school there. His, his mother was the, the, uh, the head of the, I think the head of the art school or, or heavily involved in the art, uh, in the art school in Sofia. And, but he was, as a youth, he was forced to take care, take part in what uh, they call the communist propaganda. Uh, and he was uh, doing installations of the haystacks and the machinery that farmers would have along the railroad of the Orient Express to make believe that Bulgaria was a rich country. So that was his, I, I think, his first uh, involvement uh, with reorganizing the landscape and doing something in the landscape with, uh, we could call that a small project also. Interesting to then look at later works like Running Fence and Wrapped Coast and even Valley Curtain. I know that you were aware sort of of the, of Running Fence and Wrapped Coast, but what are your kind of interpretations of these works and, and this phase in, in their career? I'm also curious if you ever went to any of them before you'd met Christian and Jean-Claude? No, I never went to any of their projects before I met them. It, out of the blue, it was my, my first meeting with them was at phone call back in September of 1983. Uh, I would have loved to see them. I mean, I've, I've of course watched the films and seen and looked at the books, but no, these were, this was before my time. Uh, 83 was the first time I came to the United States. What was your interpretation of these? I know you saw the photographs initially of these works, but what was your initial interpretation of, of what they were accomplishing? I don't see it as having to do an interpretation. It's just like a, it's just like a painting, except that he uses fabrics and poles and cables and to do something which looks absolutely beautiful in nature. I mean, the Reichstag had a, had a, a political implication, but the, uh, the Pont Neuf was the oldest bridge in Paris, so, and he lived in Paris on the Ile Saint-Louis. So for him, it was something really close to home, and he wanted to, to, to wrap the bridge. And he always wanted to do a project in Paris. Before that, he wanted to wrap the trees on the Champs-Élysées. And, uh, and at the end of the day, it's just uh, pure beauty. All, her, all the projects are about beauty. Right. And freedom, no, I, I, right? Freedom, freedom was... Absolutely, freedom. Jacques-Claude always says, like the, no, nobody can possess any of these words. It's... Uh, they, they, they come, it's like a flower. It's you, if you don't catch it when it's up and they're only up for two weeks, you, you will never see it again. It will never happen again. So mm. they had this ephemeral quality. A huge ephemeral quality and, so, and, and sort of a, you, you felt they were delicate. You had to, to go see it while it was there. It's, uh, mm -hmm. It was something really special. I would have loved to see a surrounded island because I'm a water person also and running fence and delicate. And, but I'm, I'm happy and feel lucky that I've seen all of the other projects since. Mm -hmm. I've been involved. We hear of Christo universally, but many don't know as much about Jean-Claude and how she was so integral to the work until perhaps much later. And as a friend as, and an insider in their world, how would you describe or distinguish each of their roles and their projects? Who was Christo and who was Jean-Claude? Well, when I, when I first arrived in New York, uh, if I had a question about art, Jean-Claude would say, go see Christo in his studio. Um, even though she is the one who had the idea for Surrounded Island, I mean, she could talk about the art part, but she always wanted Christo to, to talk about his work. Mm -hmm. uh, she, I think she was, in, they, they sort of separated the, what needed to be done in two ways. Christo would be doing the drawings up in his studio and Jean-Claude would be organizing all the rest. You know, I don't know if you're aware of that, but they were set up as a corporation and Jean-Claude was the head of the corporation. Mm -hmm. And the agreement between Christo, uh, who was an employee of the corporation, and, and Jean-Claude was uh, CVJ Corporation uh, would finance and build all the projects Christo wanted to do as long as Christo would give them enough drawings to sell that they could finance the projects. But that's how the, the whole thing worked. Now, all the negotiations were done by, by Jean-Claude and uh, Christo was always there, but she, she was instrumental in getting, getting people to work, getting, getting people to uh, agree on the projects and, uh, and doing, basically she did all the dirty work. <laughs> it's funny, Mayor Bloomberg had said that 
had she not been with Christo doing these works, she could have been the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. No, it just goes to show you. And, and it's funny because it wasn't really until 1994 that Christo became Christo and Jean-Claude and that retroactively Jean-Claude was recognized by museums, historians, critics for her collaboration, for her artistic part in the work. What prompted this shift at the time? Was this something that she was pushing for? No, I can tell you exactly what it happened. It happened at a lecture at um, Cooper Union in New York, and uh, Crystal gave his lecture. And at the end of the lecture, when we were standing outside, there's a, a gentleman who came up to Jean-Claude and said, uh, Jean-Claude, how is Crystal's son doing? And she went absolutely ballistic that evening and said, even my son, they don't acknowledge me for. And the next day, uh, Christo mm-hmm. said, from now on, it will be Christo and Jean-Claude for everything. And they even changed some of the press releases from uh, prior press releases from projects. Wow. So she said that even her son did not recognize her? No, 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 no. that gentleman did not recognize her as the, the mother. Oh, okay. She said, how is Christo? He asked, how is Christo's son doing? Ah, and she said, even with her son, it's not recognized. Even with my own son, I'm not being acknowledged. So it was really, really sad and angry. And the next day, everything changed. I mean, we we discussed it and and they discussed it. And uh, it was Christo and Jean-Claude. And they canceled canceled the show in Berlin uh, after the, at the time, I think, of the Reichstag Congress or just after uh, at the National Gallery because the the director of the National Gallery refused to put Jean-Claude's name on the, on the, on the title of the exhibition. He wanted Christo and not Christo and Jean-Claude. And so they canceled the show. Wow. Initially, it was a decision that it would just be Christo because it was just because he was a male artist and also they felt it was too difficult to, for two artists. Is that was their rationale? I, I think because Christo was, uh, when, when Jean-Claude met Christo, he was an artist, she wasn't. Right. She, she always said, uh, had he been a dentist, I wouldn't have been uh, associated with him. And she saw no reason to be associated at the beginning because she, was, she had nothing to do with the, with the art that was coming out of the studio. I mean, all the wrapped objects and things like that. Even later on in life, when, when, whenever we talk about, whenever we look at a project, it's always Christo and Jean-Claude. If we look at the original drawings, it's only Christo. Right. If, if we, you see a, a photograph or an edition of a final, of a, of a realized project, it's always Christo and Jean-Claude. Right. So the original works would never be Christo and Jean-Claude. She never wanted that. But she said, mm-hmm. on all the projects, if I'm involved, I need to be recognized. So it became Christo and Jean-Claude. Yeah, because his drawings were so distinct and beautiful. And, and as you said, that's the way that they helped fund their work. Jean-Claude would sell the drawings to collectors. And they are works of art on their own. He was incredibly talented in that way as well. So it's interesting. But it sounds like conceptually, it became more of a collaboration oh it became more of a collaboration later in time but even mm-hmm. if you look at the films and you see her both at valley curtain or running fence and surrounded mm-hmm. island, i mean she was instrumental she was always there she was always really involved in everything so the original drawing the original idea most of the time was was, was just crystal mm-hmm. like valley curtain running fence surrounded island was actually jean claude's idea and then uh, after that on all the projects she was just part of a, of, of, a, of a duo. It's like the, you, you couldn't uh, separate them from each other on, on everything, mm-hmm. helping with uh, telling people how to do things. And so uh, she was instrumental. I think the Gates is probably the work that together they're, they're best known for. This obviously was in 2005 in New York Central Park. Why do you think this project resonated so strongly globally? I think because it's New York City and it was, a, it was such a huge project that they had been working on for, for more than 20 years or so. Yeah. Sure. If I recall, they started that before the Reichstag. They started it before Ponoff. They yeah, were Absolutely. Yeah. And before Wrapped Island. Before oh, yeah. Island. yeah. Absolutely. It is one of the projects which happened the, the quickest. It started, I think, in 1980 and was realized in 1983. So they found a lot of drawings of that project. The only other one which was even shorter in getting done was the, the floating piers in, uh, in Lagoiseo in Italy back in 2016. Mm-hmm. Huh. We think about the gates and how long it took and, and all their projects. 
there's so many forces that the two constantly came up against, city bureaucrats, environmentalists, protesters, the media, but they would keep achieving the impossible over and over. What qualities do you think they possessed that allowed them for the success? I mean, most artists would wish for one of these projects, let alone <laughs> how many they were able to achieve together. I, I think they, were, they had the perseverance to be able to push them to the end and also an understanding of uh, the situation at the time when they would try to push a project. For example, the, with the Gates, uh, had Mike Bloomberg not been the mayor, I don't think it ever would have happened. But right. he, he absolutely loved the, both Chris and Jean-Claude and loved their work. And uh, when he was mayor, he actually reached out and said, Let's, uh, if you want to do the project now, it would probably be the best time to do it. And they did, and it was, it was easy to, to navigate the whole political system and the whole mm. bureaucratic system of New York. And it was the same, same with Berlin, with the Rap Rights Dug. The timing was the best timing for them to be able to do it. She understood all that. She was, she was really, really good at saying, okay, if we don't take our chance now, it will never happen. Mm -hmm. I think about all those projects that could have been, for instance, over the river. Was it difficult for the couple when projects didn't work out? And what did they do with, say, that project once it didn't work out? I don't think it was difficult. I mean, they, they always, as you said, the, the projects about beauty and freedom and we would have kept on fighting for over the river. And I'm sorry, I'm going to go into politics. But when Donald Trump was elected president, uh, after Christo had basically gotten permission from the Bureau of Land Management and everybody down in Colorado, we knew it was going to be a, another fight again. And he just didn't want to do that again. So he abandoned the project immediately. And what was it about Donald Trump's election that interceded? Why would it have been more of a fight? Because we had to go through uh, environmental impact reports uh, with the former administration. And when there's a change of administration, the change of people at the head of the, the BLM and all that. Mm -hmm. And so we would have had to redo everything again. And the, the first uh, environmental impact report, which is what companies like Total or Shell have to do when they want to build a pipeline or do some drilling, we had to go through the same thing. There's two huge books of about, I don't know, 1,200 pages of permissions and, and various people we had to make happy with the environmental uh, report. Can you describe and that project from a visual standpoint? The Over the River? Mm -hmm. It basically, it's an idea which sprung into his, uh, into his head after the Pornef project because we were lifting up uh, huge panels of fabric uh, underneath a bridge and he was on a barge always looking up and seeing all that. And uh, after the Pornef project, we, we did the umbrellas, which, uh, which was in 91. And then when we came back from the umbrellas, Chris had already been working on it a little bit, but he asked me up to the, to the studio and uh, I went up there, Jean-Claude was there with him. And he pulled out all these beautiful uh, little drawings he'd done of the project, which was at the time called the river. It was just an idea of putting fabric above a river. Again, the scouting for this one was another thing, but really complicated. He wanted a, a river where people could go rafting, but could be seen from a road, maybe a railroad if there was one, uh, not too many obstructions. And uh, because every time there would be an obstruction like a bridge or, or trees which fell into the river, there would have to be an interruption in, in the fabric. So we went looking for the perfect river. We drove about, I think, 7,000 miles all around the, the southwest from, from New Mexico to Arizona to all the way up to Montana and Idaho. And, and eventually we found this, uh, this river in Colorado, which was uh, basically the perfect river for, for his project mm -hmm. and we, we started working on it immediately we did life-size tests in, in hidden places in Colorado I mean we, we were all the engineering was done and we, we were we could have been ready to go if, if we had the, um, the permissions before that election and had been able to realize it before the election but he didn't he just didn't want to go through another five years or six years of, of negotiating with the BLM and, and the government. Mm -hmm. It's disappointing. That was, that was one of my favorite of their projects, just the, in terms of the ideas. It looks so beautiful in terms of how he conceptualized it. Oh, it, so. it, was, it was stunning. I mean, just, just working on it and seeing the tests. And so we have, we, we have photographs. 
of what it would have looked like if the whole thing had been realized, but only on a short section of about uh, 200 feet that we set up in a, a secret valley in, on a ranch in Colorado. So we know exactly it would have been absolutely stunning. You're lucky you got a chance to see that. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and the wonderful thing is the, the, the road we had found uh, would go up in the hills and come back down. So you, you could see it. Uh, you could see the project from above, from road level and from under if you went, if you went rafting. It would have been stunning. It would have been absolutely magnificent. It sounds to me like one of the most favorite parts of it for you is experiencing the work once it was made because the way you describe it it does sound like magic and the way we see in photographs but i haven't seen any of the projects firsthand i would have loved to but there's a magic that you describe that just sounds breathtaking and life-changing it is it is breathtaking i mean i was i was in charge of the blue umbrellas in japan and you 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 work on it and you you sort of uh, it's just a lot of work to get it all done. But then once we, we had opened all the umbrellas and everything was, was in, I just drove down the, down the street and looked at it. And I was so emotional because it's, there's nothing more beautiful. It's like, it's, it's just, it's mind boggling. Mm. If, if you look at the film Valley Curtain, there's actually a really, really wonderful quote in there. There's this uh, steel worker who's sharpening his knife on a stone and he's being interviewed by the measles. And, uh, and the measles are asking him, uh, what, what do you feel when you look at a project? And, and he says, it's not the erection of it which is impressive because we've built the Golden Gate Bridge. We know how to do these things. It's not building the actual project. For me, it's the thought. He said, I could never think anybody in his mind could think of a project like this mm. and it's really beautiful he's like a you have to watch a film I mean, the, the man is like this this really rough steel worker with beard and a helmet on and it's like it's the thought oh. yeah all the films are amazing just in terms of how they're able to there's such resistance and then finally when these works are brought to the public i mean the response and how it brings people from different walks of life together People that would never go to a museum are suddenly in front of these beautiful works of art and it's so transcendent. And it's, to me, I think that's what's so special about their work. It's for everybody. And it brings people together. I mean, we saw that at the Pont Neuf project. Uh, once it was realized, as soon as a project is done, there's basically no more opposition. People just look at it and say, wow, it's, it's stunning. It's beautiful. They, they get uh, vowed by it it's uh, and we had we had people on on the pont neuf who would never talk to each other otherwise and who were actually having conversations and 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 acknowledging that without the project they would never talk to each other i mean it was it was like that in miami for surrounded islands where you had such a divide with a lot of the cuban immigrants and very similar to what's going on today i think but people from very different walks of life brought together and i think it changed that city in many ways and I think we are, have yet to really understand the effect, the true effect of their work and what it's done for human consciousness. I mean, it's, that's how deep it goes, I think. I, th I think it's in Miami, it started the, it's really started the art scene. It put Miami on a map. And without that project, uh, I don't think it would have happened in such a wonderful way. I mean, and what's they, so interesting is there was this other sort of silver lining to it in that it was really environmentally helping those islands that were just dumps really trash dumps at the time and it's it sort of cleaned it up as well well completely it took out like tons and tons of beer cans and pieces of metal and and now to, today they, they're still clean people use them they go there by boat and they have picnics on them and mm -hmm. they've changed a lot there's a, a lot more trees on them but it's uh, it's wonderful to see how they have actually kept them in in, in a wonderful uh, clean way huh. so Jean-Claude, as we know, passed away in, in 2009, and the couple made a famous promise that if ever one of them passed, the other would continue on and would continue the work of Christo and Jean-Claude. I just want to know, when, when Jean-Claude passed, was it difficult for Christo, despite this promise, to continue on? It was. It was for... For about a year, I would say it was extremely difficult. I mean, we, we lived in a half a block away from, from where Chris and Jean-Claude lived and they'd come to dinner at our place uh, every week. And, uh, 
And after Jean-Claude passed away, Crystal came, we, we had him over one night for dinner and he said, you know what, I, I, I can't do it. It's like it brings back too many memories for me to be here. And we, we were all really worried of how he was going to, to, to survive this or if he would. And, but little by little with time, we, we would always accompany out. Uh, we'd go to dinners and restaurants and we'd take care of him. And, and little by little, he came back and his, his passion for, for art came over. But he always would talk about Jean-Claude wherever we went, whether it was with somebody or at a lecture, as if she was still there with him. Right. Never I know she never disappeared from his life. I know that they sort of famously said when they would move on with new projects, he would always say, what would Jean-Claude do? That was always sort of the first question they would ask anything they decided to do. With, with anything. He would, it was, he would never take a decision without thinking what would Jean-Claude have done. Yeah. She, she's always, she was always present. So let's discuss the Arc de Triomphe. It was evidently a dream project of Christo's since 1963, and he did a mock-up early on. Were you involved in its realization, and will you be there for the unveiling? I'm, I'm flying there on Monday. Oh. Uh, so yes, I will be there for the, the unveiling. I wasn't as involved in the organizing of it because it was uh, basically done uh, during COVID. Uh, and I was, it was very difficult for me to travel back and forth to, to Europe and I didn't really want to do it. And Christo's nephew, Vladimir, who basically built the uh, floating piers in, uh, in Lago Iseo with, uh, with a wonderful team, is in charge again of the, of the Arc de Triomphe and he's put it all together with the, the same people we had uh, when we did the uh, Rap Pont Neuf back in 85 with uh, the Charpentier de Paris. If you're interested, I mean, you can go, if you go to Christo and Jean-Claude's website, uh, there's a live feed of the installation as it's happening every day. I've been watching that. That's great. I've been watching it. It's really wonderful to see how how it's coming along. Wonderful. It's going to be stunning. So our listeners know this. Christo passed away last year in 2020. I think it it was May 30th, 2020. May 31st, yeah. May 31st. Right, right. In terms of his team, in terms of Vladimir and the team, I mean, how are they ensuring that Christopher and Jean-Claude's vision, whether it be in terms of the technology, in terms of, of, of the creative, how are they ensuring that, that the original vision is honored? With Arc de it's an easy thing. You know, this was a project which was planned uh, when he had the exhibition uh, at the Centre Pompidou in March of, uh, of 2020. He was asked to do a project something outside the Centre Pompidou, like most artists do when they have a big exhibition inside, like a retrospective. And he said, no, but if you want to, I've always wanted to wrap the Arc de Triomphe, so if you can get me the permits to do that, we'll do that to coincide with the opening of the, of the, of the Pompidou. And uh, then we found out that there were some uh, birds which were nesting on the, on the Arc de Triomphe, which are really rare. Like, and so we, we had to postpone it until after the birds would leave the nests, and that would be June. But then in June, we wouldn't be able to do it because the 14th of July celebrations are on the Champs-Élysées with the Arc de Triomphe in the back. So the only time it could be done was after that celebration, so we could start installing on the 15th of July only. With COVID, as it was, there was no way it was going to happen. Paris was under lockdown, so it was postponed one year until this year, until September of 2021. On the 15th of July this year, um, Vladimir started the installation with the Charpentier de Paris. But the, the project was ready. I mean, Christo had designed everything extremely carefully. The position of the ropes, the fabric was being done in Germany. Everything was approved. The, the steel structures were being built by the Charpentier. So it's not as if Vladimir has any interpretation in the project. It is Christo's project. And it's Christo knew this was happening. Oh, he knew it was going to happen because uh, he, he, it, it's, that's why Vladimir was living in Paris for the last two years. He knew that if anything happened to it, it was also Christo and Jean-Claude's will. If a project was so advanced that it could be done, then it should be realized. And so, right. yes, he knew it would be realized. Simone, what do you hope will be the response to this final work? Ah, the same as usual, that everybody's just going to enjoy it and think it's really beautiful. And it's, I think it's going to make everybody miss Christo and Jean-Claude even more. It's like it's... Uh, it's it's basically a, a testimony to, to their, their beautiful life. So having spent so much time of your life with them, mm-hmm. what would you say Christo and Jean-Claude's greatest legacy was? 
Oh, I think they've, uh, they've influenced so many artists around the world and brought joy and beauty to so many people that I, I, I don't know how to, to quantify that. I mean, it's just a, for me, they're the most extraordinary artists out there because of their, their vision, their capability of bringing it to fruition and sharing it with everybody. And they never, all, all these projects were free and never cost a cent to taxpayers or to, to cities or countries. They, all these projects were financed 100% by, by Chris and Jean-Claude through the sale of a drawing. So I don't know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's hard to say, but I, I, I don't think there's any other artist in the world or any artist in the world which could, which could uh, do anything like that. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems they were unparalleled. The legacy is just uh, huge. It's, uh, and it's, it's being studied. I mean, I'm, I'm meeting young people today, even people living in Miami, who said that because of them, they are an artist today. Even, even artists who are, who are well-known in the Miami area, they, they worked on Christos project. We have a lot I mean, who, who work on every single project and are completely influenced by, by, the, by the way things are done and the beauty of the final product. Because at the end, we have to remember, it's all about the beauty. That's all it's about. I think of this era of Instagram and where everybody's taking photographs and looking for spectacles of some sort. And I just wonder if, you know, if Chris and Jean-Claude had <laughs> the timeline been pushed, I mean, I, I can only imagine their influence today. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds almost trite, but I mean, just, just visually and the fact that they create these works for the public without expecting mm-hmm. anything from the public. I mean, I just feel that they were so ahead of their time. Oh, they were. They were, and, and, and the thing is, a lot of people had a, a misconception of some of the works because they were not uh, realized chronologically. He was called like somebody who wraps buildings, but he, he doesn't. And if you look at the, the last buildings being wrapped, including the, the Arc de Triomphe today and the Reichstag before that and the Pont Neuf before that, these were all planned back in the 70s and uh, are just being the 60s and 70s and were realized 20, 30 years later. So if you look at the progression, I mean, when you see the, uh, the running fence and then uh, the, the umbrellas and the, uh, the floating piers and the surrounding island, those aren't wrappings. Those are completely new projects. So I, I think what's interesting is to see how their work evolved from wrapping buildings to uh, huge installations in, in nature, which, which sort of are just mind-boggling and, and mm-hmm. stunning. How would you compare them to some of the earth artists like Michael Heiser or any of the other environmental artists? I mean, what would you say is the distinction? I don't think they should be compared. I think the uh, Michael Heiser did, I mean, I love his work and uh, it's, but the, the, the scope and the, the scale of what Chris and Jankrod have done over the years is can't be compared with any other artists mm-hmm. to me. And the, also the, if you take uh, other envir- uh, environmental artists and you lose like the spiral jetty and the things like that, these are works about, they're much closer to a, to a painting. You can't experience it the same way. You can walk on it sometimes right. if the water isn't too high, but you, the interaction with Christopher and Jankel's work is, is just unique. I mean, you can touch the fabric, you can, you can walk on it, you can sit for hours and, and uh, but the, I don't know, uh, there's, there's, there's nothing else like that out there. Uh, well, we're lucky. We're lucky to have this final work. And it'll be exciting to see the response around the world. It will. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens after that. I mean, there is one more project that is also completely planned and ready to go forward. And that's the Mastaba of Abu Dhabi, which, oh. was, also planned, which was also planned in the 70s. Right. Uh, and they have the smaller version at the Serpentine Lake in London, the Serpentine Gallery. A, a much, much smaller version. Mm-hmm. The just, just with that yeah. is a 450 or 500 million dollar project to build and it would be the only one that uh, the foundation of course would not uh, finance and it would mm-hmm. be the only one that would be permanent meaning it would uh, it would be built like a museum it would be a sculpture and, ah. and the uh, there's a recycling uh, factory inside so that if the sand uh, takes the color off the barrels in sections, they can come off, be replaced, and be repainted. And it's, it's a huge, huge project. And the uh, the sheikhs wanted to to build a 
a city close by so that they, they can have hotels and things that people can go and see it. It's totally isolated in the middle of the sand dunes in, outside of Abu Dhabi. Uh-huh. So what, would, what is... We're hoping, we're hoping it will be realized. I mean, it was, it was getting close, but uh, with Christo gone, now Vladimir is the only one who was with him all the time at all the meetings in, uh, in Abu Dhabi. So we're, we're hoping that he'll be able to pull it off and, and uh, it might be built in, in, I wouldn't say the near future, but in the future. I always put that in the sort of in the in the file of works like uh, over the river, you know, mm-hmm. works that that these incredible works I always wish would be created. So that's that's incredible. I can't believe that they're that they're considering that as the final work. Yeah, because it was the same thing. I mean, we've worked so much with all the engineers, engineering firms, and and Christo had approved all all of the work to be done. And uh, so it's basically just a construction job now to to, to make that happen. And the, and the only permanent one. That's amazing. And the only permanent one. And the permanent one. It would be like the, the symbol of the Arab countries with all the oil barrels piled up. And it's huge, huge, huge. Wow. Incredible. All, all the other projects like uh, uh, over the river, even though we were so advanced, they will never be realized. It's not something that, uh, that Crystal wanted. So mm-hmm. we have canceled other projects before. So. That's very exciting information. We Thank you to- so much, Simone. This was a delight. We're very excited to see the realization next week, and I hope you enjoy your trip. I hope you'll post some photos as well. I'm sure yes. I will. I'll post, I'll post some little photos on Instagram. Uh, love to see. <laughs> we'll be watching there, and we'll put yeah. your Instagram up, so that, that would be... Wolfgang has already taken like amazing photos of all the installation that you can see if you go to Christo and Jenko's website. Great. Art Laws is produced by Alex Zappa and Robin Rosenfeld. Music is by Voidcore. And the episode you just heard was recorded in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Follow us on Instagram at Art Laws Pod. And subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a comment and give us a rating. We'll be back soon with more. Bye. Bye.